0: Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to be slicing off a huge chunk of bread today. We're going to redo the whole chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 8, and hear the inspired, inerrant word of God. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Mepheg Ammah from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab. Forcing them down to the ground, he measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also David hamstrung all the chariot horses except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betha, from Berothi, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him for Hadadezer had been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, all of your word. Uh, We cherish your word, and it is our desire to conform our lives to your word. And we pray that you would uh, uh, take uh, me as a clay vessel and use the glory of your Uh, your Holy Spirit and your grace to transform our hearts through uh, your word. Your word is truth and we believe it and uh, we want to grow up into you in all things. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many here have seen the movie Pollyanna? Okay, quite a few of you have uh, seen that movie. Uh, there is one scene in there uh, where Reverend Ford, who is played by Carl Malden, is giving a masterful presentation of, uh, uh, of a, you know, it's kind of a Jonathan Edwards uh, type of a sermon with the chandelier shaking and people are kind of tugging uncomfortably at their collars. And you can tell Pollyanna does not like this kind of preaching. And afterwards she goes to him and very gently talks to him about You know how it would be a good thing if he would just focus on the 800 rejoicing passages in in the Bible. And, of course, the pastor does that. He never again preaches on a negative passage. (laughs) Well, based on the number of sermons in existence on this chapter, (laughs) I assume most pastors have subscribed to a Pollyanna philosophy where any chapter that deals with blood, guts, and gore, uh, they're just not going to touch it. They're not going to go there. And if they were forced to preach on this chapter, they'd probably focus in on one phrase, the phrase, the Lord preserved David. That's the happy verse in this uh, chapter, okay? (laughs) And uh, as we'll see, you have a distorted view of life if you buy into a Pollyanna uh, philosophy. Uh, Even the Christmas story is punctuated with the massacre of the innocents and the fleeing of uh, Joseph and Mary and Uh, Jesus uh, into Egypt, and the reason for this is that the Bible is a book on real life, and real life is not always happy. You can count on the Bible to be relevant to the situations that we face uh, even today. But there is a kernel of truth in that uh, Pollyanna movie, and that kernel is that even the worst things that happen to us are designed by God to work together for our good and for God's glory, right? Right? everything in life works together for our good and I love the way that Pollyanna is always looking for the good in every situation uh, that that she faces I I think it's a good thing to do it's a it's a good habit to be involved in she tried to find the good even in the fact that she didn't get the the Christmas present she didn't get the doll she got crutches that she didn't need Uh, but she was always looking for the good in every situation and uh I, that's certainly the case in this chapter. Even though Satan tried to rob David of joy and of life itself, the psalms that David wrote during this, the period of this chapter, the psalms that he wrote showed that Satan was not successful at all in robbing uh, David of that joy. He had learned, just like the Apostle Paul had, to rejoice even in tribulation. And those uh, same psalms show this gruesome chapter was symbolic ...of the new covenant kingdom of Christ. Imagine that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a situation where even the negative passages, the most negative passages of Scripture, have a happy resolution in Jesus. And you don't get to that happy resolution by ignoring the passage. Uh, you get to it by digging deeper. And I'm going to make a feeble attempt at digging deeper into this passage and helping you to to see that. Now, there is a lot more that could be said than I'm going to say, but I'm going to studiously try to avoid saying that much more. Before we dig into the passage, though, let me me point out that there are four other passages that give a historical context uh, of what is going on here. And once you understand the historical context, I think that you will uh, somewhat sympathize I think it will soften what most people find very offensive uh, about uh, this passage. They show that David was not an imperialist. He was not a bloodthirsty tyrant. On the contrary, David was actually seeking to obey the command of God to possess his possessions within Israel. And with the three nations who were outside of Israel, Ammon, Edom, and, and, and Moab, uh, David was actually engaged in defensive warfare exactly like Deuteronomy 20 commands him to, to do. Now piecing all of the little pieces together, here's what happened. While well, David's armies were in the north trying to defend his God-given territory, a Syrian coalition dominated by Moab and Edom swept in from the east and from the south and um, brought devastation to, to Israel. It was totally unexpected. Now, David thought that he was on good terms with these two nations, but there was a conspiracy uh, that uh, was attempting to absolutely annihilate the nation of Israel. And if Kyle and Hengstenberg's interpretation of 1 Kings 11 is correct. There were a lot of Israelites who were killed. In fact, uh, it took Joab and his entire army quite some time to identify the bodies and to bury the bodies of the Israelites uh, that had been slain during this time because of this imperialistic invasion of Israel by Moab, Edom, and and Syria. So this means that David was under attack from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. He was in a battle for his life. He was in a battle for the existence of Uh, of Israel for survival that's the context now let me read to you the the whole of Psalm 60 because it not only gives the weeping and the confusion of Israel during this attack and it's something that Psalm 124 picks up on as well but it also gives God's authorization uh, for the subsequent conquest of these nations Psalm 60 and I'm going to begin reading with the inspired title to the chief musician, set to Lily of the Testimony, a miktam of David, for teaching. When he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. O oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. O, oh, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble, you have broken it, heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things, you have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. And then here comes God's answer to this plea, God has spoken in his holiness I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies... Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is He who shall tread down our enemies. And so the historical context shows that David was perfectly justified in the actions that he took here. God Himself authorized uh, those acts, and to speak ill of them, as so many people have done, is to speak ill of God and God's justice. Um, But those same psalms indicate that God was using this historical situation to teach us about the way Jesus' messianic kingdom would come and would would be established. In many ways, uh, this passage functions symbolically, just like uh, Psalm 110 did. David's kingdom was a type or a symbol of Christ's kingdom. So when I titled this sermon... Images of Christ's kingdom, I'm not engaging in eisegesis, reading into the passage something that's not there. I'm simply taking my cue from how God himself has interpreted uh, these events. So we we need to look at all of the historical events in light of the other passages uh, that are interpreting them. They're symbols of Christ advancing the Great Commission with the sword of the Word, the Bible. So really there's a God-centered emphasis that needs to be uppermost in our minds. Now, this morning, we're going to look at eight main lessons with respect to Christ's kingdom, and the first one is that there must be constant vigilance in the new covenant era. It doesn't matter how many victories that we have won against Satan in the past, Satan's still going to come back swinging, and he's going to try to take us down. Uh, Verse 1 begins with the phrase, "'After this it came to pass.'" After what? Well, after the glorious promises of God's covenant with David and after all of the rest, complete peace that he had described early in chapter 7. In fact, it's such a contrast that liberal commentaries uh, say this has got to be a chapter that is out of order. Surely, chapter 7 comes much later in 2 Samuel 7, and there are some evangelical commentaries that follow suit. And we say by the inspired record, no, that is just not true. He says, after this, it came to pass. After the covenant God made with David. After the peace that he had experienced in verse 1. In fact, take a look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. He had rest. There were no more attacks from the enemies of Israel. Things were beginning to stabilize in the kingdom to the extent that David was now freed up to be focusing his time on building God a temple. At least that was his intent. He wanted to do that. and God would uh, not allow him uh, to do that. But it came after God's promise of an everlasting covenant. It came at the height of David's spiritual walk with God at the height of his political career. And so it's no wonder that David... Is shocked. He's saying, Lord, why have you forsaken us? Why are you allowing this to happen? He is mystified by this sudden turn of events. And there are two lessons uh, that I think we should learn from that first phrase in verse one. The first lesson is that the church militant must never let down its guard. We must never let down our guard. And to a large degree, that is exactly what has happened to the church of my generation. I mean, we grew up when I was a kid in a Christian culture, and uh, we became self-satisfied. We became content with the status quo. The church was no longer watching, and Satan came back and started attacking us when we were not prepared. And he's taken over the American families and the churches and state by state. Satan has taken over our nation. We are a polytheistic nation right now that has completely thrown off the bonds of God's loss. Satan has broken down our hedges. He's all but destroyed the church's ability to be salt and light. Now, here's the point. I don't blame Satan for doing that. You can count on Satan being Satan. He's always going to hate God. He's always going to attack God and God's people no matter what. He's going to be consistent with that. So I don't blame Satan. I blame the church. I blame the church for failing to be vigilant. Take the movie industry, for example. According to Ted Baer, Christians were one of the predominant forces in Hollywood from 1933 to 1966, a period of 33 years And during that time, the Roman Catholic Legion of Decency and the Protestant Film Commission read every film script uh, that was coming out, and if they didn't give their imprimatur to it, people would just not watch the movies. And uh, so they were having an influence trying to raise the standards of decency within the film industry. Now, I was not aware of this, but he claims that prior to 1933, the American uh, movies were morally bankrupt, full of nudity, perversity, and violence. And it's interesting that the protests didn't seem to phase the movie industry at all. The letter-writing campaigns didn't seem to phase them uh, at all. It was not until the church came alongside of Hollywood and began to act as salt and light that a difference was made. And it was a profound difference, but it was precisely because they were being vigilant. But then the church bailed from the movie industry, bailed from politics, bailed out of the news media, basically showed no interest in being salt and light. And what happened is that Satan got up off the ground where he had been knocked down. He came back swinging. And it's unbelievable the changes that have happened since the 60s. Most of our modern problems that we grieve over are problems that have stemmed from the church's lack of vigilance. It's our fault. And it's especially when things have been going well that Satan will attack God's people to see if they've got their guard up. This is exactly what happened to David. Uh, This is not the first time later on uh, when he was again at a height in his political career having success after success that Satan took David out with his adultery with Bathsheba. How many times have businessmen and politicians and pastors been taken out because they've let down their guard and it's at the height of their success they just kind of relax they, they 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 back away but this issue of vigilance distinguishes the true nature of christ's kingdom from the false one and the false one says oh christ is going to set up a, a physical kingdom with his physical presence in jerusalem in the future and it's going to be instantaneous now why does it? i say it's a false one You look at the descriptions of the kingdom of God, and our view of the kingdom requires vigilance. The other view of the kingdom makes God's people passive, and it's made God's people very passive uh, during uh, the last century. All the descriptions of Christ's kingdom, including Psalm 110, describe it as beginning and continuing during a time when there are enemies. There are enemies who are looking for every way and every opportunity that they can to take us out. It is the nature of Christ's kingdom to require eternal vigilance and to put off nonchalance. Now, obviously, their applications could be made to the military. In 1790, John Philpot Curran said, The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. Which condition, if he break, servitude is at once the consequence of his crime and the punishment of his guilt. Uh, Thomas Jefferson condensed Curran's advice with the short phrase, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Because of uh, lack of time, I'm not going to be making a lot of applications to the military except in those situations where I think it's really critical to understand what's happening uh, today. But I think it's pretty obvious, the application to the military. Next point deals with kingdom judgment. And for any people who are offended by the idea that God is a God of judgment and they think the God of the New Testament is all uh, love and and uh, gushiness, I would have them turn to Luke 18 and the the, the the parable of the importunate widow who is repeatedly asking this judge for vengeance. And what is Jesus' conclusion? That the church needs to be asking for vengeance continually <coughs> before the Lord. <coughs> and um, I find that, that last phrase in, in, in that parable very curious. He says, but, nevertheless, I think he starts with, Will he find faith in the earth when the Son of Man comes? In other words, he, it, Jesus is almost skeptical that people are going to take this command to be praying for vengeance against God's enemies very seriously. We need to. But I would have them turn to the, uh, the, the, the parable of the importunate widow or to Romans chapter 13 where God has made civil magistrates to be ministers of God's vengeance. Or I would have them turn uh, to the book Uh, of revelation you see our God is the same yesterday today and forever he has not changed his character in the new covenant at all and we've got our eyes closed if we do not see God's judgments happening right now in Africa and in Asia and South America even beginning to happen uh, here in America the first kingdom to be judged was Philistia in verse 1 after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Mephig Amah from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there's three things to remember about the Philistines. Now, the first is they started this. Uh, now, actually, God started it because He declared them under the ban, didn't He? Uh, they were uh, a nation that had filled up its cup of iniquity, but they were out to annihilate Israel in First Samuel, and uh, they tried to annihilate Israel again in Second in, in Samuel chapter to 5. So that's the first thing to remember. They hated Israel, and they were very aggressive against Israel. The second is that God had already declared them to be a nation that was so far gone into sin that they deserved to be wiped out. And there does come a time when a nation gets beyond the, the point uh, 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 of being able to repent, beyond the point of redemption, and they can be taken out. The third thing to keep in mind is we've already seen in past sermons that any Philistine who repents, converts, and becomes a Jew was no longer treated as a Philistine, okay? He could convert uh, to the God of Israel, and in fact, many Philistines did convert and did become Jews, just like in the book of Esther, it says many uh, Gentiles in that book converted and became Jews, Okay, well, take a look down there at verse 18. We'll, just, we'll talk about that later, but you'll see there the Cherethites and the Pelethites who were the most trusted guards of, of David, and uh, they stuck with David all the way through. They were converted Philistines who had embraced the God of Yahweh. In other words, God's judgments are redemptive. Yes, God's judgments take out the vessels of wrath and send them to hell, but those same judgments also bring redemption to His own people. God uses His judgments many times redemptively. But anyway, the Philistines are certainly a fitting culture to symbolize a world under judgment. Now, the second nation to receive judgments from David's hand was Moab, And this one's a little bit more puzzling because Moab was not part of the boundaries that God had given to Israel. People are puzzled. Why would David take that over? Uh, Just take a look at uh, verse 2. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Now, this is a passage that has troubled uh, many people. And it's interesting that different people are troubled by opposite things. There are some people who are troubled that David did not kill off all of the Moabites. They say, what is going on here? Saul was disqualified from being a king because he didn't kill all of the Amalekites. How come God's letting David off the hook when he's doing exactly the same thing? Well, it's not exactly the same thing. Let me, let me, let me comment on this Uh, extreme first first of all Moab was not one of the tribes that was given to Israel its cup of iniquity back in the time of uh, Moses was not yet full and so it's not the same at all as the Ammonites whose cup of iniquity was full and whom God said you have to kill them all they were God's instrument of divine justice by divine revelation. God no longer gives any revelation, so we're not going to be instruments in his hands uh, to be able to do that. But uh, uh, it's a totally different situation, the Moabites. And David was not being unfaithful when he spared one-third of the soldiers. Now, others have criticized David for the opposite reason, for fighting with Moab in the first place and for killing any prisoners. So it seems that David cannot win for losing. By the way, we ought to take a cue from this. If your goal in life is to please other people, you're going to be constantly frustrated, right? It's impossible to please everyone, and I just say give up on that idea. Your goal in life should be to please God, and if others are pleased, that's great, but just let them say what they will about you. You've got to stick to the Word of God and let the chips fall where they may. But anyway... Uh, This second group of critics cites the passage I just quoted from Deuteronomy 1. It's a passage that mandates a non-interventionist approach to warfare. And they ask why David is invading the sovereign nation of Moab. Secondly, they point out that Deuteronomy 1 calls for free trade between Israel and Moab. And they wonder where David was authorized to subject Moab under his heel. Well, actually, Psalm 60 and Psalm 108... Uh, God gave divine revelation right in the time of this uh, chapter uh, to do exactly that. When <clears throat> Psalm 60 talks about casting David's shoe over Edom, that's a symbol that Edom is going to come under his feet, under his domination. When he gives Moab to be the wash pot that David's going to wash his feet at, again, wh- where, where's Moab? It's under his feet. It's just another symbol of God authorizing David uh, to put them under, under, his, uh, un, under his feet. And um, here's the question. Why this change in policy? Well, the answer is simple. Moab deserved what they got when they invaded Israel, seeking to swallow up Israel completely. David wrote Psalm 124 at this time, making it clear that the Syrian-led coalition was determined to exterminate Israel that was their desire Deuteronomy 20 assumes that all nations should mind their own business and stop trying to be the policeman of the world but it also indicates that when another nation invades a nation like Israel when another nation invades you you got a right to do something about it in fact he says arm yourself to the teeth march up to the capital city of that nation and declare peace to it that's an interesting way way of declaring peace Armed to the teeth, you say, we declare peace to you. And if they say, okay, uh, we give up, we'll accept your terms, then they become your slaves until the war reparations have paid for the damages that they have caused to your country. Perfect justice. Slavery until they've paid off the debt that they owe. If they refuse, they say, no way are we going to be your slaves. We're going to duke this out with you. Then, when you win, win the battle, Deuteronomy 20 authorizes you to kill every soldier in that army. Every soldier. Well, that's a huge motivation for soldiers to say, hmm, our king's being a tyrant. I'm not so sure that I want to be fighting against Israel, and for them to defect. If they defect, they're out from under that curse, out from under that ban. And so it's a deterrent to aggressive kind of a warfare. And so what David actually did here is merciful. He was authorized to kill all of them because they had tried to annihilate Israel, but he showed mercy to them. Now what is puzzling is why Moab even decided to attack Israel in the first place. They had been on friendly terms with David previously. They had offered sanctuary to his parents in 1 Samuel. You remember that. Uh, His great-grandma was a Moabite. David was totally blindsided by the Edomites and the Moabites sweeping into Israel and killing all of these Israelites. He had no idea that that was going to happen. So anyway, based on the attempted genocide that occurred, the Moabites got what they deserved. So the obvious military lesson is to make sure that it doesn't pay to engage in wars of aggression against America. Our policies are beyond stupid. Uh, They invite people to attack us. They're just beyond stupid. We go in, we conquer them, then we flood them with money and we rebuild the country and we reward them for the wars that they've, uh, that they've uh, done against us. Now obviously America should not engage in wars of aggression either, otherwise we are subject to exactly the same repercussions that Deuteronomy 20 says a nation deser- deserves when it's an aggressor nation. If you were to follow Deuteronomy 20, you would follow George Washington's non-interventionist policies. And unfortunately, most evangelicals don't today. They are hawkish. And so the killing of two-thirds of the Moabite army was a severe judgment. There's no doubt about it. But it was a judgment allowed by Deuteronomy 20, and it was a judgment authorized by God in Psalm 60 and want to And if you don't like it, you just need to get over it. This is the God that you serve, and uh, he's not going to change just because you don't like it. Now, the gospel lesson that can be given is that this symbolizes the redemptive judgments of Jesus, though it does not explicitly mention any converts of Moab like it does the converts of Philistia, and anybody could convert to Judaism any time in the Old Testament that they wanted. it. But even though it doesn't mention specifically any converts, the last sentence of verse 2 is worded in a way that at least symbolizes how Christ's judgments often lead to the salvation of nations. last sentence says, So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Now when God speaks of this event in Psalm 60 and Psalm 108, He uses metaphors very similar to what the New Testament does when it says... That all things will be put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in any case, uh, God's judgments in the new covenant are often redemptive judgments. Okay, next facet of the kingdom was deliverance—deliverance deliverance of God's people—and let's read verses um, three through four. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. He went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now I want you to notice, uh, first of all, that David was not engaged in territorial expansion to the north. He was simply seeking to regain territory that had been stolen from Israel. Uh, Even if we didn't have the three Psalms to give us instruction on this, I think it would be clear. This is a a war. This is a defensive war. It's not a war of aggression because it says that he went to recover his territory. That word recover means Israel possessed it before. Somehow it had been taken away. He's going to get it back. But Psalm 124 describes this battle as God having rescued Israel from certain destruction. And I want to read Uh, that psalm to you. Psalm 124. "'If it had not been the Lord who was on our side,' let Israel now say, "'if it had not been the Lord who was on our side "'when men rose up against us, "'then they would have swallowed us alive "'when their wrath was kindled against us. "'Then the waters would have overwhelmed us. "'The stream would have gone over our soul.' Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Now, of course, that psalm beautifully describes our salvation from Satan, right? And uh, certain destruction in hellfire... And uh, so there's a typological aspect, even though there is uh, literal applications, there are typological salvation applications as well. Now, the second thing that proves that David was trying to follow God's laws with relation to defense alone was that he hamstrung uh, all of the chariot horses except for a hundred. Now, that meant that he cut the Achilles heel on one of their legs. They would still be able to... Uh, walk around and still be able to reproduce, but they would be useless for driving chariots, which is what they had been uh, trained for before. And this was simply following God's mandate in Deuteronomy 17, which commanded kings not to multiply the horses of Egypt. Horses of Egypt were specially trained for chariot warfare. They were not to multiply those kind of horses to themselves. And it was following the mandate in Joshua 11, verse 6, which says, You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, why get rid of such expensive and very effective warfare equipment? You'd think that he would say, yeah, for the defense of your country, get all kinds of chariots. Well, beyond the incredible cost of maintaining those uh, chariots, and you study Solomon... And you'll see, wow, that he have to become a bloated government to be able to maintain them. Just aside from the cost of maintaining them, there's two main reasons why God had them not be multiplying these horses. They could have some, but they weren't to multiply them. First of all, these chariots were not really suited for the terrain of Israel. So they weren't very well suited for uh, self-defense, and then secondly, these were the kinds of instruments that were used by all of the imperialistic nations uh, for their uh, their military-industrial expansion, uh, you know, worldwide. That was the goal of all of these other nations, and God wanted Israel to studiously avoid uh, such things. <clears throat> Anyway, David did keep a few of the chariots because they're not sinful in themselves, but his goal was not expansionism via the multiplication of such things. What he wanted to do is he wanted to possess and defend the territory that God had given to him and to remain a very, very decentralized government. And I believe this should be the goal of modern militaries, to deliver a nation out of the hands of attacking invaders and to defend our borders. Now it's not a philosophy that's very popular nowadays, but I believe that George Washington's international policy of non-interventionism is an international policy commanded over and over again uh, in in the Bible. For example, concerning the nation of Edom, God told Israel, do not meddle with them, though he allowed Israel to engage in free trade with them in the next verse. But that phrase, do not meddle with them, must once again become uh, the the, the philosophy of America. Now, some people say, oh, Phil, that's just so unrealistic. We live in a global society where we've got a global economy and we need the oil in the Middle East. Of course, we're going to be involved in wars over there. Let me tell you a a little secret. Uh, David was involved in a global economy, and this was the crossroads that... The global economy went through, and he still said, don't meddle with other nations. Don't meddle with them. That's not isolationism. Free trade is not isolationism. This is non-interventionism. God's policy was the same with the nation of Moab. He commanded Israel, do not harass them or meddle with them. God ...allowed Israel to have a strong defense of its borders... ...but commanded Israel to limit its horses, Deuteronomy 17, 16... ...because those were almost always used for the invasion of other countries. Okay? Section 8 of the Enumerated Powers Act of the Constitution... ...indicates that the power to collect taxes is... Quote, ...to provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. Any war... Any invasion of other countries that does not have both our defense and something that's in the common welfare of our nation is not authorized by the Constitution. So both the Bible and the Constitution uh, are restricting us from being hawkish and require us to have a strong defense of our borders. And weirdly, America has inverted the two. Uh, We have almost no defense of our borders. They're extremely porous. But we get involved in virtually every nation's internal affairs. Every time a terrorist comes over our borders, what do we do? Do we go to defend our borders? No. We go send troops over to other nations. It's just a ridiculous policy. Got to end. But when the symbol or type is applied to the expansion of the gospel worldwide, we have to ask, symbolically, what were the borders given to Jesus, the greater David? They weren't just Palestine. Palestine. They were the entire world. Romans 4 says that the promise was that he would be heir to the seed of Abraham, that's Christ, was he would be heir of the world, okay? And so the marching orders for the church are to not rest until all nations are discipled and brought under the sphere of the word of God. Hebrews uses the analogy of Joshua entering the conquest of Canaan, says that's exactly what Jesus is doing, only this time it's not with a literal sword, It's with the double-edged sword of the Word of God bringing the gospel to all of the nations uh, of the world. Those nations must be delivered from tyranny, the bondage of Satan, rescued from death and into life. And so defense and deliverance continues to be a part of new covenant living. Now under 5, it's clear that when Israel was attacked, it was allowed to expand its borders. That's the only time it was allowed to expand its borders. said, okay, don't meddle with these other nations, but hey, if they attack you, you can go in, you can set up your your forts and your other things uh, in in, in that nation. So I'm going to deal with the whole controversial issue of land or the boundaries for Israel, and I've divided the passage up into four sections so that you can uh, visualize it. In um, verse 1, David's expanding uh, westward into the Philistine territory. Verse 2 has him expanding eastward into the Moabite territory. Verses 3 through 11 has him going and expanding north uh, all the way up to the Euphrates. And in verses 13 through 14, expanding uh, down into Edomite territory. Now before I get into the map, uh, let me explain an apparent contradiction between the names and the numbers that are listed in this chapter... And the names and numbers listed in both 1 Chronicles 18 as well as in Psalm 60. In Psalm 60, Joab struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. In this passage, David struck down 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. And in 1 Chronicles 18, Abishai kills Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And yet it's clear to commentators this is all the same battle. It's all the same battle. Even though it seems like a puzzle, it's pretty easy to solve. One commentator explains, a traditional way of dealing with this apparent discrepancy is to suggest that Abishai, 6,000 casualties, and Joab, 12,000 casualties, assisted David in the task, but that David, as commander of the operation, was credited with all the casualties inflicted on the enemy. In other words, Abishai's 6,000 plus Joab's Uh, 12,000 comes to David's 18,000. It's just simple math, okay? But what about the names? Uh, What about the names? Was it Syrians killed, as stated here, or was it Edomites, as stated in the parallel in 1 Chronicles and in Psalm 60? And you'll see people doing all kinds of gymnastics, and usually they just say, well, it must be that the Hebrews lost here in 1 Samuel. I never go that route. That's a chicken-hearted way out uh, textual criticism, God has preserved every jot and tittle of His Word until the second coming, okay, all the way through. So that's not a good way to go. So how do you explain this? Actually, uh, let, me, let, me, let me say it this way. A blow to the Edomite part of the Syrian coalition in the south would be a blow to Syria. And the Hebrew, interestingly, of this passage does not say that there were 18,000 Syrians who were killed, as uh, uh, several rabbis have pointed out, the literal rendering is this. And David made himself a name when he returned from striking Syria in the Valley of Salt, 18,000. That's the literal Hebrew. So it was Syria who sent those Edomites down uh, into the Valley of Salt and therefore striking 18,000 Edomites would be a blow to Syria. And so really all of the facts do reconcile beautifully. Now, I I want you to take a look now at your map that's in your outline because uh, this illustrates an error repeatedly made by dispensationalists. They often claim that Israel never received her full inheritance that had been promised to her uh, of the land, and so those prophecies need to be fulfilled in the future. Now, here is their reasoning. First, they say that Genesis 15 promised the southwestern Border would be the river of Egypt, and which river is really comes flashing to your mind when you think, What's a river of Egypt? It's the Nile River. And so they say that's the border that we should be thinking about uh, there. And then they point to four passages, and I won't list them all for you here, to prove that the eastern border is the Euphrates River. Now it doesn't say east in any of those verses, that's an assumption. So if you look at the red dotted line... Oh, I guess I didn't have a color printer for you. Okay, if you look at the line that goes from Persia over in the east, the Persian Gulf, cuts straight across across the Red Sea, then follows the Nile River up to the Mediterranean, then follows the Mediterranean up north of Hamath, that is a huge swath of land that Israel never did uh, inherit, never did control. And so these, um, these uh, Christian Zionists, uh, their argument is that since the promises given to Abraham were unconditional, Israel still needs to inherit that land in the future. So they want Israel, present-day Israel, to possess parts of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and even a little section of Turkey. Now, while that is a very clever argument, it falls to the ground on a number of points. Now, first of all, the Abrahamic covenant was not unconditional. Read Genesis 18, 19 sometime, and you will see it's clearly not unconditional. Uh, second, not once is the eastern border called the Euphrates. Not once. Instead, the Euphrates 100% of the time is spoken of as being the northern border of Israel. Let me give you some examples. Jeremiah forty six speaks of the quote, the north country by the river Euphrates. Jeremiah forty six ten. And then the next verse talks about well, actually as verse six says that it's, quote, toward the north, by the river Euphrates. Likewise Exodus 23, verse 31 expresses the borders of Israel as moving from east to north. And here's how it words it quote, from the desert to the river. Okay, it doesn't include the desert, it says from the desert to the river. So it's moving, uh, saying that the desert is the eastern border, the river is the northern border. Now if this is confusing to you guys, I've got a paper, which we don't have a photocopier to have photocopied it today, but I can send it to you. It, It gives all the borders, it gives all of the details on these things, but you can just try to listen and see if you can process it. As to the southwestern border, not once in Scripture is the Nile River called the River of Egypt. Instead, there's another Hebrew term that is always used of the Nile. Second, the other six verses that refer to the southwestern border refer to it as the brook of Egypt. The brook of Egypt, a clear reference to the modern Wadi el-Arish, So unless you're willing to say the Bible uh, contradicts itself, the river of Egypt and the brook of Egypt are synonyms. Third, Numbers 20, verse 16, describes the border of Egypt as being near Kadesh Barnea, which is a slam-dunk argument for the traditional border that we've put in that smaller part there. This means that what was promised to Israel was a very small kingdom with the dotted black line around it that goes from south to north, from the brook of Egypt up to the Euphrates, from west to east, it goes from the Mediterranean up to the desert. And um, in this chapter, we have a full and complete entering into the inheritance of the land that had been promised to David. In verse 1, David finished the conquest of Philistia, completely filling out the west. In verse 2, uh, and by the way, uh, the, the yellow part there never was promised, and almost everybody agrees with that. Um. In verse 2, he conquers Moab in the east. In verse 3, he recovered all of Israel's previous territory all the way to the north of the river Euphrates. In verses 13 through 14, David expands to the southeast into Edom. And all of this was a symbol for the far greater growth of the new covenant conquest of Canaan by the greater David, Jesus. In fact, as I've mentioned, it's, uh, it's always been just a tiny down payment of what was anticipated for being the inheritance of the world through the Great Commission and eventually of a new heavens and a new earth. But nowhere does the New Testament allow us to expand militarily over the whole world. Types or symbols pointed to the gospel. Now, there, the underlying literal historical reference, we can apply that literally to ourselves today But you don't mix the metaphors of gospel uh, with military or something like that. Now, there are military applications from the uh, literal events that underlie the symbolism. And if you look closely at the map, you'll notice that Moab and Edom, and Ammon for that matter, they're not part of the land promised to Israel. In fact, in Numbers 20, Deuteronomy 1, Joshua 15, Israel uh, was told not to meddle with or harass those nations. Numbers 24 did prophesy that Israel would eventually take over Moab and Edom. That's in Numbers 24, 17 through 19. But God did not allow them to take those nations unless those nations engaged in an aggressive warfare against them. Now here is the deal. David's great-grandmother, I think I already mentioned that, was a Moabite. and He had earlier left his parents under the care of Moab. David made a treaty with Toy, uh, with the king of Ammon, and it was not until the three nations attacked Israel that Israel was biblically allowed to invade and make sure that such aggression never happened again. And so when David took over Moab and Edom, he put garrisons throughout their nation, he required war reparations from those nations. He was doing exactly what Deuteronomy 20 says is good to do. It's not imperialism, it is common sense. When nations seek to annihilate you, you hit them hard, you make them pay, uh, you don't engage in nation building. Now, all of this is motivation for other nations not to attack Israel. It makes such attacks not worthwhile. So even though there is a Christocentric focus, the land promises being fulfilled in Christ, and there are the down payment of the new heavens and new earth, I don't think we should neglect the fact that these principles do have application to modern warfare. Now, the sixth image of the kingdom, at least I think it's six. Anyway, the next image of the kingdom was David's stewardship focus. David did not engage in these wars to enrich himself or his friends or his relatives humanistically. And this is staggeringly different from all of the other wars of ancient history that you look at. Take a look at verse 11. King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. Uh, there were massive amounts of money that were coming from all of these nations. Uh, in fact, 1 Chronicles twenty two fourteen 14 tells us just of gold. I mean, there was other things that came in as well. The amount of gold and silver that David dedicated to the Lord was 100,000 talents of gold, which comes to 3,750 tons, or if you want metric tons, 3,450 metric tons. And he got a million talents of silver, that's 34,500 metric tons. Now if you convert that to modern valuation, this means David gave away 249 billion dollars to the temple. It's no wonder it was a magnificent temple. (laughs) A huge amount of money that was spent on the building Of that temple. And there are a number of scriptures that show that everything David had and owned, he considered to be God. He didn't give everything to the temple, he gave them very, very generous, but he really considered himself to be a steward of everything that God had put into his hands. And that's exactly the attitude that Christ calls us to have in his kingdom. In fact, he says, You can't even be my disciple if you don't give up everything and follow me. Everything. Well, in Mark 10, when the disciples said, okay, Lord, we've given up everything and followed you, here's what Jesus said. Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. So we're not just talking heaven. You're going to get back a hundredfold now in this time. And he gives the same things you've given up to the Lord. He says, okay, now I'm going to give it back to you a hundredfold Exactly the same things, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children, lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so this is an image of where our kingdom focus should be. It should not be self-centered. It should be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And of course, Christ is able to give us far more back than we have given to him in fact he says if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all the things that the Gentiles seek after will be added to you now our focus is not on the money it's not on those things our focus is on Christ those things are added but the point is that he is incredibly generous I cannot imagine the wealth that David had if the part that he gave to the temple was 249 billion dollars that's a lot of moolah now, Proverbs thirteen twenty two gives the general principle that's being talked about. It says, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. Isn't that exactly what happened with David? God delights in blessing stewards with more and more and more. And there may be times, like with Job, that he takes it away. He tests our hearts to see if we've got stewards' hearts. But if we've got hearts like David did, God causes the wealth of the wicked to be stored up for the righteous Seeking first the kingdom of God does not mean there's no place for storing up. And we'll see in the future that while David was very generous, he had plenty to live on. Now, there are obviously military applications could be made on this verse too: War reparations, occupying enemy territory, providing deterrence to aggression. I think I've talked enough about those. But I do want to briefly reiterate the kingdom images of conversions that are hinted at in this passage. In verse 2, David was authorized by Deuteronomy 20 to send all the Moabite soldiers to their death, but he showed mercy, and the way verse 2 is phrased at least stands as a symbol of New Testament conversion, even if they themselves did not convert. And in the New Covenant, there are people whom Christ destroys with fire, and there are those who are rescued from the fire and who gladly serve him. Uh, secondly, verse 10 says, then Toy sent Joram his son to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. Now commentators point out that the name Joram is a Hebrew name that means Yahweh exalts. No pagan would have named himself Joram. So all the commentaries I have assume he must have gotten that name later on in history. I believe that just like Hiram, king of Tyre, this Joram guy was converted to the God of Israel. Uh, he became a, a convert. So, again, it stands as a, a symbol of uh, some of the ways that Psalm 2 says that kings in the new covenant uh, will be taken out. They'll all be ta- either be taken out by being destroyed under Christ's rod or by kissing the Son. And isn't that exactly what Joram was doing? He was kissing the Son of God when he was giving these gifts to David, who in turn gave them to the Lord, and when he was calling himself by the name of Yahweh and when he was blessing uh, David. It's an image of kingdom conversions in the New Testament where eventually every nation will bow down and serve the Lord. And I've already mentioned the the third hint at conversions in verse 18, uh, Cherethites and the Pelethites, So even though this is somewhat subtle, it is a little bit subtle, um, I think these are beautiful images of nations that avoid the wrath of Psalm 2 by kissing the sun in New Covenant times. Okay, let's finish up here. The last four verses deal with kingdom administration. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub. And Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Saraiah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. There was a delegation of administration under David just like uh, there has been a delegation of authority under Jesus. And Romans 13 insists that there is no authority if not from God. All human authority that is legitimate authority is delegated authority from King Jesus. The new covenant kingdom is not a kingdom where God rules all by himself. No. He takes over the world by sending his ambassadors to preach the gospel, right? And he rules, he governs the world through his ministers, who, who administer justice. And of course, you know, you look at uh, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, the pastoral epistles, you've got his description of his ministers within the church, who rule the church. Romans 13, you've got his administration of justice through his ministers, civil magistrates. Ephesians, Colossians, and other passages talk about his administration of the family through the fathers and how the fathers uh, need to uh, function and how the mothers need to, to function. But uh, these last few verses speak of limited government with delegated, enumerated powers. So it's been a pile. We, we've eaten a huge loaf this morning. I wanted to deal with the whole, the whole chapter, but hopefully you've gotten at least some hints of the, why it is that the Psalms apply this to the Messianic kingdom. Ephesians 2 says we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Revelation 2 says we've got the right to hold that rod, to rule the nations with Christ as those who are seated uh, with Him. We can pray for redemptive judgments to advance His cause. We can pray that God's kingdom would come, that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that may mean sometimes we're going to face sacrifice, we're going to face pain, we're going to face difficulties like David faced in this chapter. But uh, God's kingdom is a real kingdom dealing with the sinful realities of this world. And this chapter calls us to vigilance, agreement with God and His judgments, calling upon God for deliverance, sacrificing ourselves for kingdom growth, having a heart of stewardship, being involved in gospel conversions, and getting down to the nitty-gritty of daily administration uh, of our kingdom lives, no matter how boring that may be. May we be faithful on all eight points. Amen. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being uh, your stewards within your kingdom, advancing your cause, lifting up your glory, and it is our desire to see your glory established. And, Father, even when the enemy comes in uh, roaring and uh, seeking to swallow up and destroy uh, your kingdom and your people... Uh, We pray against them, realizing that our salvation is not in man. Our salvation comes through you, and by faith, we lay claim to your victory on behalf of your church and the the persecuted sections of the world and uh, the victory of your church even here where we're not persecuted, but boy, are we uh, under the heel of Satan as uh, we have lost all influence, all saltiness and you have cast us out to be trodden underfoot of men. Father, restore the saltiness of the church of America once again, and I pray that we as a church, uh, as small as we may be, might make a difference wherever you have placed us. We want to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.